Season 2 of Them Collectively, a podcast made with love and intention to create space for queer femmes. My name is Corinne. And I'm Rahul. And we are your co-hosts. So this week we have a really powerful interview with two folks who I look up to so much. And they've been friends of mine for a few years now. Um... I actually met them because I read their book, Millennial Sex, and I wanted so badly to interview them about their work for another side project that I was working on at the time. So I had already interviewed them about their work a few years ago, so this was really exciting to re-interview them and see how their projects have evolved, how their mission has evolved, um, and really where they're at right now with the incredible um, activism and just really community building work that they are doing and organizing work that they're doing. So um, their names are Lee and Nastasia, and they are currently based out of Miami, Florida, but we were lucky enough to catch them when they were (laughs) passing through Brooklyn. Um, Yeah, and it was kind of a crazy weekend because it was when we were moving. Mm -hmm. We did it in Rahel's apartment, like surrounded by boxes. (laughs) But we made it work, and it was... Um, honestly, an incredible conversation, and I always learn so much every time I talk with them, every time I hang out with them. They are just always thinking and evolving on new ways to see healing and new ways in which to bring communities together um, past violence and and after violence has happened mm-hmm. and really find ways to organize together and like create cohesive responses to hard situations. So I just I can't you can't speak highly enough of them. I admire them so much. <laughs> but yes. before we get into their interview, Rahel and I wanted to kind of give a little like one oh one on restorative justice, transformative justice, mm-hmm. the way that it plays a role in our lives and how we see it individually impacting mm-hmm. us. Yes. Yeah. So what was kind of your I'm curious like first introduction to anything around restorative justice? Um, I didn't really hear about restorative justice until I um started going to like to conferences. I think I went to Cove for mm-hmm. Color of Violence. Um, and I went to Chicago for that, and that's where I first heard the term restorative justice. And it's really funny because, um, Color of Violence, that there was a whole lot of drama that happened around that, that conference in general. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I think it was something about some of the founders, like, just 
not being truthful or something. Mm-hmm. Who knows what it was? Mm-hmm. I can't really recall, but I remember hearing about restorative justice while I was there yeah. um, and thinking about um, how um, to make communities better. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, while I was there, it was really funny because in um, in a session that I was in, there was some conversation on um, on what things could look like um, when thinking about, um, I guess, trying to dismantle whiteness or move beyond whiteness. Mm-hmm. And I think that I had said something about um, wanting and expecting, like, um, white folks to do their own work with their own people first before they try to do work with in and and show support in communities of color like there needs to be like hey where have you done your work have you done work with your own self with your family with Mm -hmm. your friends with your community um and then I was like but I also have space to talk about these things with um, with communities of color before I have space to talk about them with white communities. But and then I think I even talked about even within communities of color, there needs to be talk about um, what anti-blackness is, what privileges are, and all of these things. And I think someone was like talking about how um, they were like, well, things aren't just so black and white. And I was like. No, they aren't, but in a lot of ways they can be in thinking about how whiteness affects our world so much and also how, you know, anti-blackness is such a huge thing just across all communities, Mm -hmm. regardless of what privileges we may have, even when thinking about spaces where I could have more privilege than another person of color, like, there are still, there's still anti-black, roots of anti-blackness in so many things, and whiteness rules, like, a lot of things, and in that, um, it was really funny, because, um, a lot of people had things to say, but they were shot down a lot by this particular person, and in that situation, like, in that specific, um, workshop, no one, like, a lot of people left feeling unseen, feeling like they weren't heard, and there was really no aspect of, like, bringing things full circle and bringing things back and talking about how that very workshop was an example of how um, work needs to be done um, and um, and what justice could look like in that. But I think also because no one really was talking about transformative justice, I think that that's why that conversation couldn't be transformed into something else and we couldn't dig deeper into what a lot of the roots of of things were. And I think even in that time when I was learning about restorative justice, I was in a place of anger um, and rage and wasn't really processing that in a lot of ways. Um, So so I think when thinking about that, um, that's how I learned about restorative justice. I learned about it in a place of rage. (laughs) And so not thinking about going beyond that anger like and I think I think to me that's what restorative justice kind of means like being told that yes your anger is great but not being engaged Mm. on how to transform that anger into something else I I feel like 
And I feel like in a lot of communities that doesn't happen because yeah. we're taught that, like, because to me, being in a place of anger is really, like, it's really, it's not a healthy place to be. It's not the best place to be. And, like, there are really no examples of how to transform past that. There aren't a lot. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah. Yeah. I think for me, I first learned about restorative justice actually through my work with RAIN, which is the Rape and Incest National Network. Mm -hmm. And I learned about it through the way of community accountability as an option for people healing from sexual assault, mm. um, specifically on college campuses. And so as like a response to sexual violence. And okay. so I learned about that restorative justice was kind of like taking the harm that was done and moving through it, but like almost moving kind of backwards through it because you're moving back towards that equilibrium that existed before the violence happened okay. not instead of like moving up and over the violence and transforming into a new existence and a yes. new balance that feels better where maybe you're thinking actually beyond restoring and actually transforming into beyond healing and transforming into preventative work and mm -hmm. transforming into talking to people who cause harm and talking to people who experience harm and mm -hmm. how do we navigate through this. Exactly. So that was kind of, but I didn't, I was not familiar with transformative justice probably until maybe like a year ago, Yeah. to be perfectly honest. I think before mm -hmm. that I really only understood restorative justice and only could envision restorative justice because I couldn't envision transformative justice also because of my rage and because yes. I was so yeah. angry at people who caused sexual violence mm -hmm. and caused domestic violence and that and I speak specifically about that because that's my purview and that's really where I feel like I can speak from yeah you know like I feel yeah. like I can't speak from a lot of other like like community organizing experiences, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. I'm okay. not, and just like disclaimer that I, it's this is work isn't just in this avenue, but that's kind of where I'm like coming from. But I think that like, yeah, I think that I didn't really understand mm -hmm. transformative justice was even an option because I couldn't really see that. I was just yeah. really stuck in this place of like focusing so much on the healing mm -hmm. of people who who had experienced sexual violence that I couldn't really see how we could transform societies, like, beyond that. Yeah. Um, I and think it's still hard. It's hard yeah. because the thing about transformative justice is you do have to get creative and use your imagination, and the thing about transformative justice is that it does really have to be a collective effort. Yeah, it has to be a collective effort, and I also feel like with transformative justice, you actually have to, you have to both see the abuser and see yeah. the, um, the survivor. Sure. So, so it's like, you, you have to be able to have that, both of those in your vision. Um, for me, transformative justice, I didn't even hear about it. I didn't hear that word until we did this interview. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but I had, um, I thought about like reimagining, like there, at that same conference, there was a 
book that I read and I'm at the author's, um, Octavia's Brood, mm-hmm. um, where that was the first time where I thought about reimagining things, reimagining how we can survive mm-hmm. oppression and whatnot, but it was in a way of thinking about it in a form of, like, imagining what our, um, what our futures could look like yeah. it through science fiction, through, um, through mm. writing. And for me, um, for me, in a lot of ways, science fiction, because, you know, some people are like, that's so, like, that's not real. That's mm-hmm. not something that can actually happen. But for me, for me, a lot of people see science fiction as fantastical, and, and it's hard to think about um, seeing it in a real way to where you can relate it to your own self and your own communities. Right. But I could see that. And in a lot of ways, and where I was coming from with how I, especially in this last year, with how I've healed um, from a lot of my traumas, um, I was looking for for that word, for um, for what that could be. And then when we did this interview, I was really excited because I was like, yes, that's what that is. It's transformative justice because, you know, I, you know, in order to me, in order for real work to happen, um, really seeing um, seeing people who have inflicted violence on us, no matter what kind of violence that is, but then also seeing ourselves, you know, as survivors of that violence, especially when thinking about generational traumas mm-hmm. and thinking about like collective traumas of yeah. our world. Yeah. Um, I think there has to be a way to where we where we actually can see our oppressors and also see um, survivors. Like it has to be it has to be both. I feel like um, just to you know to be able to see like um, see each other as human, but also when thinking about that, that goes into like who can be seen as human and whatnot. So right. I think I think about like all of these things a lot, and that's. Um, that's how I came to transformative justice yeah. as a really nice introduction. Yeah. Yeah. I think in my own like personal life, the way that I see these play out in mm-hmm. my own personal life um, is I really, I mean, I do workshops around community accountability. I really mm-hmm. strongly believe in it and I really have like, definitely seen myself and like community and friends work through moments of restorative justice um and like restoring to a space of like balance Mm -hmm. right transformative justice is really still very difficult for me and I think yeah I'm thinking back to a particular moment in my last like year of life Mm-hmm. that was really hard for me and I'm thinking about now that as we're having this conversation I'm thinking about how I really feel stuck in my process of mm-hmm. healing with those folks who also shared in that experience and mm-hmm. feeling like oh wow maybe I could use transformative justice with those folks but then there's still something grinding my gears that's stopping me from going all the way there and yeah. it's like causing that resistance because of my anger that's still residual. Yes. So I think that transformative justice is really hard, and I think that it's, it's, um, 
these terms are tossed around a lot in social justice movements. Yeah. And they're tossed around with What, ease. both transformative and restorative? I think so. I've never heard them. And really? Yeah, not, I've I never heard them, them until, we, until we did our interview. Okay. But also, I think for me, I'm like kind of out of that, I'm out of that vein. I'm not really, um, I, I'm not really in like, in that world anymore in that way because I kind of for me there was a moment where I realized I was like um this is a lot of labor Mm -hmm. um this is a lot this isn't good for my health Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of anger and rage associated in all of this and there's like a lot of like circles of rage and anger and for me I don't want to be a part of that so I kind of was like you know for me um, I'm going to take a step and I'm going to focus on myself yeah. and informing and taking like taking like that leadership role and forming what looks like a close knit like community for myself, you know. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so I never heard it being tossed around. Yeah. I only heard restorative justice being tossed around. Yeah. But that was like, I think the last time. I really heard um, a lot of that was in 2016. Okay. Because I was still, like, a part of, like, going to marches and doing all these things. But, like, yeah, I don't think anyone talked about transformative justice. I just feel like they are kind of have become, like, catch-all terms that people Mm -hmm. just, like, toss around and don't quite understand the implications of what they're saying. Right. are tossed around with ease as mm-hmm. though these processes should just be. And but, it's yeah. as if they don't take serious, intentional rewiring of the of ways our own in self, which right? of our own selves and the ways in which we work in communities, of the mm-hmm. ways in which we exist in our relationships. Like yeah. it's complete rewiring of our systems from mm-hmm. moving from this like capitalist punishment paradigm mm-hmm. to completely reimagining towards transformative justice. Right. And people just say these things like, boom, 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 this mm-hmm. is the answer. Mm-hmm. These are so easy. But in reality, if you were to take, and that's what I'm doing right now, I'm mm-hmm. taking the definition of transformative justice and I'm applying it to one instance in my life where I felt harmed. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, holy shit, this would be really fucking hard for me. This would be really hard for me because I'm feeling my gears, Mm -hmm. like, literally in my whole body, just, like, to a stop because of my anger. And I can't go all the way there yet, you know? So, so I think, for me, it starts, like, I think transformative justice kind of starts within first and also wait so we haven't defined them so for our listeners who don't know what restorative and transformative justice even are what why don't we give you all um definitions of what what they are yeah so restorative justice what so restorative justice focuses on the harmed party and like uh, and on repairing and restoring the community through like healing um, that like passed like through the violence that happened right? yes. and the impotence the harm that happened right mm-hmm. um, transformative justice might use different aspects of restorative justice mm-hmm. um, but it's really concerned about the roots of the violence and transforming the conditions 
So it's basically saying, like, restoring to the status quo is not enough. Mm -hmm. And right now it's kind of really theoretical framework. Like, it hasn't really the practice large scale. But it really is about saying, like, restoring isn't enough. We need to transform. Mm -hmm. We need to get to the root of the Mm -hmm. issue. This is beyond individual. This is, like systematic oppression right what is the root how can we get there yeah how can we start to all individually work towards this common goal or these common sets of of transforming goals together yes yay so those are our definitions of of both restorative and transformative justice yeah um for me i think i can see um Restore, not restorative. I I think I can see transformative justice in some ways because, um, because of that place that I went to where I removed myself from what was making me angry mm-hmm. and what was keeping me enraged and um and I did a lot of work within myself to see where those things came from within me first and to see what I was mad at, um. And, and to also, like, reconcile that within within myself mm-hmm. um, first. And I think that that's a lot of what transformative justice could deal with is, like, really thinking about ourselves first and, and really healing within ourselves first before we even think about mm-hmm. um, coming together into thinking about like the entire collective like the work has to be done within ourselves before we can see like the possibilities for things to be healed collectively and also that goes for everyone involved like if everyone involved isn't doing the actual work Mm -hmm. to um go within then there's no point there's no such thing as transformative justice that can't happen but um, I think there is such a thing as if you are maybe a person who has gone through that individual mm-hmm. process of guiding people who maybe haven't gone through the individual mm-hmm. process but are willing to show up and say, hey, I really want to join this collective work. Yes. And you're like, okay, well, first we all need to make sure that we are coming to this with the same intentions, with the same, mm-hmm. like, you know individual like similar individual practices where we can kind of have a common ground um yeah for sure I think and I think that there is a way in which to like train and converse around that and like making sure that we are holding one another accountable in that process and and holding one another Mm -hmm. also tenderly and saying like yeah, I see you, and I once was where you were at, mm-hmm. and I can help you yes. if we have the energy to help. Yes. And then there are some times where we're not going to be able to, and we call in other community members. Yeah. So I think it's, it's a process, and that's why the collective is so important in that. Yes. Because burnout is freaking real. Burnout is so real. But I also think that being honest with how we can um, actually help collectively is real, mm-hmm. like, knowing whether you can actually be in, like, those roles where you deal with community in a lot of ways is important because if you have, like, a lot of deep inset anger in you, then why you shouldn't, there's no, there's no work that should be done, like, you know, in community spaces in a lot of ways because is your anger going to drive that work or, or is your, um, like 
your ideas on, you know, going beyond that anger, going to drive that work. And that's not to say that someone who's angry can't do any type of community work at all, but thinking about, like, where, you know, being honest with yourself about what you what really can, you yeah, what yeah, role you can actually play. Roles, absolutely. And also being, like, seeing your community members who might be, you know, um, operating on anger and actually pulling them to the side and being like, are you sure that you want to be doing this? Are you, you know, are you, is this healthy for you? Um, you know, like really seeing someone and actually telling them something that could be hard for them to hear. I think that we are afraid to be direct with people and tell them hard, hard things. And because it's also hard for us to hear hard things about ourselves Mm -hmm. too. Um, but Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we hope that you all learn as much as we did from Nastasia and Lee. Yes, it was beautiful. And if you want to find their work, follow all the links in the description. They are phenomenal. Hire them as facilitators. Hire them as trainers. Read their books. Like, follow them on all the social media. Uh, they are brilliant minds who are truly like onto something with community building. And yeah. Here we go. Yay! So today we are with Stas and Lee of Spring Up, which is an organization all about cultivating a culture of consent and liberty for all. And we're so excited to talk to y'all. This is like a really (laughs) special treat because they live in Miami. And so they're in New York, and they head up, and come visit us. (laughs) It's so cold. It's so cold here. (laughs) It's real hot in Miami. Oh, I need that. Um, So can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourselves and just, like, the energy that you like to put out into the world? Hmm. That's an interesting way of putting that. Um... Yeah. Yeah, so. so we've been in a relationship and organizing together for five years now officially for five years i think it's wow. hard it's hard to separate the two because we met at a queer organizing conference and we were roommates yep oh my gosh. <laughs> and have just been like organizing and like mind melding and like loving each other since then i love it yeah i think that it's interesting because we like did get together the first weekend we met but it was very like we're at this conference we're having fun like yeah whatever and then it was just like whoa, I feel like I really opened up more than I do to other people. This is, like, really serious. But then we was off campus, even though we went to college together. Um, And so then, like, we were shocked because we were like, oh, my gosh, it's the universe, because we were roommates again at another queer conference two weeks later. No way. Wow. And then we realized that it's because our last names start with R and S. So, like, actually, that's what I But then we were like, I don't know, is this happening? And then we were like, no, I'm obsessed with you. Um, And then we've just kind of been somewhat inseparable since then. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was almost six years ago. But we, like, got together, um, I guess, five and a half years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, that's us as a couple. We're very much like a fusion, if you like, Mm -hmm. Steven Universe. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously finishing each other's sentences. Yes. Um, I think that we were in London and, like, a friend of ours was like, do you watch Steven Universe? And we're like, no. And then she's like, okay, well, you're a fusion, so, like, you should watch this. <laughs> and now we're obsessed with it, and we're like, oh, Wait, my God, it's so, so what real. what fusion would you be? Like, what stones? Ooh, that's <laughs> an interesting question, because we do identify a lot with Garnet. 
um, mm-hmm. like just as an entity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think that in a lot of ways, like Ruby and Sapphire, like does make a lot of sense for us. But mm-hmm. then we also do hold pieces of both of those. Yeah. So more like Garnet in that we both carry both of those energies. Yeah. That's a really good question though. That. Like what crystal would you be and yeah. how would you fuse? Yeah, yeah. I think that it's interesting though because we have this gem um, that's lapis lazuli and pyrite. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like it's really beautiful, and yeah. there's like something about that blend that like feels really like right for mm-hmm. me and for mm-hmm. both of us. I think so. I think in some ways that would make a lot of sense too. Yeah. yeah. Um, and our work. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think yeah, our work really has been inextricable from our relationship um and we started out we were working on a peer mentoring organization for the queer community mm-hmm. at our college and um kind of segued from that into the sexual assault movement yeah. and raising awareness of um violence that people of all marginalized identities are experiencing on college campuses mm-hmm. and how that's kind of swept under the rug right. and a lot of that has changed in the last five years I think in large part because of the activism that happened on college campuses. Yeah, yeah I mean at the time like people just really saw sexual assault on college campuses as an issue that white women were dealing with mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. as like the main form of violence that was happening on college campuses right. but there were so many hate crimes and like things that people were calling like bias incidents. Right. Um, against the like Muslim community, the indigenous community, like black and brown people, like the queer community. Mm-hmm. Um, and for us, so much of that was sexual violence. And it just seemed ridiculous for the sexual violence movement not to be talking about the types of violence that weren't necessarily like stranger rape or like right. even the kind of intimate partner violence that's like depicted in the media. Right. Um, but the way that that shows up in our communities and against our people. Um, and so that really became like our mission for a few years was really mm-hmm. just traveling around and like telling people that sexual violence actually was a unifying framework mm-hmm. for talking about coalition building and the kind of violence that like everyone faces, but that right. people of color, queer folks, differently abled folks, trans folks, like experience higher rates of, right? right? And so like, if you're talking about that, we should actually be at the center of that. Right. Um, and so I think that that relates to my personality because every time I show up to a space, I feel like I'm really a code switcher, but not in the way that I'm like trying to be what you're looking for, but I feel like I always become the thing that's missing from the space. Mm-hmm. Like there's something about being in a space and feeling like there's like a voice that isn't there. And as, like, a mixed, like, non-binary, like, I feel like I'm between so many different identities. Like, the identity that I end up holding in that space is actually the identity that, like, doesn't feel like it's present there. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, So I think that that became really, like, institutionalized in our company, Mm -hmm. in the work we were doing in the sexual violence movement of, like, really centering the voices that weren't being included in the conversation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and um so we were in this awareness building stage for a while and then after hearing so many stories of violence really needed to switch to a healing and prevention frame Mm -hmm. and so that's where we got into consent education which is more like the programming that we were doing with the queer community right um and and doing education around like power and gender and like 
because for us consent is not like a legal framework right like there's a lot of issues with consent as like there's an active and a passive partner there's someone who's like giving and receiving and Mm -hmm. this idea of like getting permission Mm -hmm. like being within a power dynamic um and so really thinking of consent versus coercion and like really talking about power and identity and Mm -hmm. how that shapes intimacy um is what is actually preventative for folks i think um and then also really getting into trauma healing and we Mm -hmm. host this like r and r circle which is like resilience and revitalization and Mm -hmm. trauma healing techniques um but it still felt like what was missing was an actual response once harm happened Mm -hmm. that wasn't just about like punitive responses or like being like something went wrong Mm -hmm. we're gonna like fix it and that's where we got really into restorative and transformative justice yeah realizing also that the work we were doing could be transformative justice if it was done with the right populations at the right time the right frames and i feel like in the sexual violence movement that's really a taboo topic like people who believe in restorative and transformative justice outside of the framework of sexual violence often have a really hard time envisioning it for a response to sexual violence. Right. And there's really this, like, like okay, I see transformative justice and restorative justice, and then you're, like, sexual violence, and they're like, no, no. no. And there's, like, this <laughs> really visceral, bound, like, like, wall that goes up for folks. And I think that it's because it's, like, this violence on the body that's so, like, you feel so much that becomes a part of, like, embodiment and that people are like, well, that person then needs to feel it in their body and, like, go to prison forever. Right, exactly. Right, yeah. right. And, and instead of thinking about how people can actually transform themselves right. and even, you know, people can make decisions around, like, what they want to do with that person who inflicted violence on them because what right. if it's a lo- your lover, mm-hmm. you know, and you want, you you're like, you want your lover to still be like a part of your life and it's like how do you how do you have that transformation yeah. within your relationship right mm-hmm. or like a community member which I feel mm-hmm. like you deal with a lot with like you know the work you started in the queer community right like yeah. a community member how do you deal with that what is the yeah. response how do you support the survivor and find ways to communicate with the person who caused harm mm-hmm. yeah I think that it's complicated because especially when we're working with adults when they think of domestic violence mm-hmm. they're thinking mm-hmm. of cases that are so extreme that they're like okay but so you just want to talk what if that person then kills their partner and yeah. we're like okay safety needs to be the first step no yeah. matter what, what like yeah. that's like incredibly important to just like figure out how people can be safe mm-hmm. but the reality is that so few people actually feel comfortable moving forward with the criminal justice system exactly. and we're not giving them any sort of option yeah. and like whether it's that you don't want more people in your community to be taken by this machine that like is really just extracting labor mm-hmm. um, or you want don't want like your community to be perceived as having higher rates of violence or it's a loved one mm-hmm. um, like whatever the reason is a lot of people don't want to move forward with this process right. and like not only that but this process is primarily about like stopping the harm from continuing to happen mm-hmm. it's not about healing right. it's not about like rehabilitation it's not about like helping the community deal with the fact that this already happened right. it's not addressing any of the reasons why this happened in the first place that could recreate themselves in other families in the area and the children mm-hmm. in any of these things it's just trying to be like okay we're going to put a band-aid and like stop this mm-hmm. from happening right. anymore yeah <laughs> And I feel like all of that, like that carceral type of like punishment and things like that, that literally puts band-aids on 
our situations of what happens when it comes to sexual violence or like a lot of different types of violence. For sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, can you touch a little bit, we'll get into the femme stuff later, but I feel like we're already <laughs> in the work stuff, so we yes. might as well just like dive right in. Totally. Can you explain a little bit um, the difference between transformative justice and restorative justice and like where you're at in this process right now and like touching on a little bit of the workshops that you've been building and doing in the community? Yeah, so we see restorative justice being practiced more as a way to address a incidence of harm mm-hmm. and to create a system of accountability. Mm-hmm. And it's gotten a bad reputation where it's been used by folks who are progressive, who are kind of against the prison system, right. where it's like, let's just try to make everything okay. We don't actually know the solutions to these mm-hmm. things, but you should just forgive each other. Yeah. And that actually ends up looking like a culture of silence where you're disincentivized by your community right. from bringing things forward because mm-hmm. you get the message that it doesn't really matter. Right. And so I think it's worth noting that that's like where we're coming from and that mm-hmm. is the perception that um, people have had of, right. of how it's practiced. Yeah, but I think that the key piece here is that restorative justice is about understanding why Mm -hmm. um, and addressing the specific harm and getting accountability, whatever that looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can also really be about the healing of the survivor, but Mm -hmm. not necessarily as focused on the perpetrator's, like, Mm -hmm. transformation, but instead Mm -hmm. on just getting them to take accountability for their actions, right? Um, And so, like that's incredibly important because often in our like social change movements we get so caught up in the idea of like cultural transformation that we lose sight of the individuals that are affected Mm -hmm. by the harm and they become kind of like martyrs or who are just scapegoated if they're the perpetrators or just like sacrificed as the survivors um to this like larger issue Mm -hmm. um but that's why restorative justice that addresses a specific case is so important transformative justice on the other hand is about understanding the why and the dynamics and especially centering the community Mm -hmm. um and doing the work to actually transform the dynamic that created that harm into something that is more equitable as a result of the harm. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that within whatever conflict or harm, there's actually the seeds not only of its own resolution, but of the understanding for the community to actually transform those patterns. Mm. And like you can think of with Harvey Weinstein, right, that once people are like actually talking about this, they're a little bit more open to learning about the underlying dynamics than they were before. Um, And so that's kind of just acknowledging that once something is already happening, there's a space for growth that you can actually really Mm. engage with at that moment. And it looks a lot more like community education, right? Mm. And so part of the challenge that we've had is a lot of folks practicing restorative justice, there's this ethos that everyone in the circle knows what they need Mm. Um, and that is true like people are experts in their own reality they're Mm -hmm. able to say like this is what I need from you this is what's going to make this situation feel better and they have the information to resolve that conflict or harm Mm -hmm. but that does not mean that the people in the circle have the tools to necessarily prevent that from happening again or the like structural analysis to understand why this happened from a like systematic like perspective right and so transformative justice and specifically the work that we do is coming in to cases once the harm is somewhat accounted for Mm -hmm. and actually doing the education to get folks to make sense of it and to prevent it from happening again and so transformative justice like 
in some ways the way that we say it it sounds like so great and like maybe better but mm-hmm. like it's not they need to be done right. together yeah um they need to like build on each other right and transformative justice can also be done as an add-on to the criminal justice system so like the criminal justice system is just about addressing the harm of a specific mm-hmm. case it's not about healing it's not about reconciliation it's not about like rehabilitation or the community Mm -hmm. um and so once someone's found accountable for the harm through the criminal justice system there's still a space for education for the folks left behind when they go to prison or when Mm -hmm. they're returning from prison or even working with folks who have been found guilty of perpetration Mm -hmm. in the prison system so we've done more work in the juvenile justice system around Mm -hmm. that Um, that's really so needed there's actually um at the hospital that i volunteer at they're starting to build a program where um and it's not like implemented yet but they're building the program where soon um the role of the advocates are also going to be like going into the prison system and like working on programs like this with like perpetrators and with people who have been like found guilty in the criminal justice system of sexual violence and domestic violence and it's just I feel like those conversations are so needed and I think that that I love your perspective that it's not like all or nothing like the reality is right now that we do have this criminal justice system and like yes like restorative and transformative justice outside of it can work in the community really well but Mm -hmm. like also there are ways that like we can work with this system that is sucks but like is there and how can we do that that's really I think that that's really powerful because we need to like find ways to slowly get there and yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. and also I guess acknowledge that because for me I'm I don't like the prison system whatsoever at all I think that it's just completely something that just doesn't work with me but I also have this like in my head where I'm like well just because I choose not to, I try not to work with it within it as much as possible, but what about my family and friends and people who are already within the system? Mm-hmm. Like how, you know, you can't just like isolate, you know, people mm-hmm. and be like, oh, well, it doesn't matter because I don't work within it. You know, right. you have to totally. like yeah. be present and think about that. Mm-hmm. Right, like giving up on the system shouldn't mean giving up on the people who are already who are in it. stuck inside right. of it. and. I mean, I think that there is this I- there is this stigma about working with perpetrators and the idea that perpetrators mm-hmm. can take accountability because right. or um, could transform right mm-hmm. because there is this idea you know abusers don't change. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but how do but how do you become like I don't I don't know like how do you become an abuser in the first place like right. you know you think about like the history of all of that and it's like of course people can change like mm-hmm. we all yeah right yeah. It's, it's learned <laughs> behavior that's normalized mm-hmm. and so yeah. if your partner if your community and if you yourself decide to hold yourself accountable mm-hmm. absolutely and you know the fact that there are a few cases of people who probably are addicted to power mm-hmm. do see themselves as like predators right. and like might not want to change their behavior mm-hmm. the criminal justice system sees everyone like that right, right? right. Mm-hmm. and I think that means that people are giving up on the I would say almost 80% of people let's you know just pull up my ass but <laughs> let's say 50 to 80% of people I do think like could gain some self-awareness right. and mm-hmm. change their behavior right. and actually want to treat their partners 
right mm-hmm. and right. be in loving relationships yeah. you know or just like don't understand why they feel this way like why right. they feel like they need to like dominate people or mm-hmm. they need to like take power from people mm-hmm. and if you really like talk to them about it and help them uncover the like reasons why mm-hmm. like within themselves it's about their family of origin it's about their like mm-hmm. insecurity it's about right. their inability to like be consensual with themselves to yes. hold themselves accountable not only for harm but for their own desires mm-hmm. and their own goals yeah. and like a real like distancing from the kinds of feelings that they feel they're not supposed to have of vulnerability of sadness right. and like kind of just merging everything with anger mm-hmm. and like not being touched and like linking touch to violence like there are so many different reasons why people even who are like very violent or dominating or like controlling people like if they have the ability to really like talk about it and process it even if they don't think they want to change like having that information and going through it in a way that's not primarily about the harm but that's about like them as a person like we're investing in you as a person because you are deserving of love Mm -hmm. you are deserving of respect no matter what you've done Mm -hmm. because you're a human being and I'm not doing this because I'm trying to get you to like take accountability for the harm that you've done I'm trying to do this because like you need help and like you need someone to be there with you Mm -hmm. and like it's going through that process that then towards the end of that they're like wow now that I understand myself better I can actually see that I may have hurt people but if you feel like admitting that you hurt someone means that you're not deserving of love or attention then like you're not gonna Mm -hmm. say that of course and that's what we're taught like we're taught so much that you know if we have like those violent tendencies or if we do have like more controlling personalities that no you're not deserving of love mm-hmm. yeah so it's easy to get caught in that circle yeah mm-hmm. I was wondering do you have any tips for folks um who like a lot of the questions that I get in the sex ed practice and that I do is like how do you have these conversations with people when it's just casual like how do you do this when mm-hmm. it's just casual like and I feel like there's, um, you know, like always this term, like the hookup culture of, like the, of millennials that people love to toss around. But it, I think that a lot of it is this like fear of vulnerability and like fear of intimacy. But how do we have these conversations with folks if we have just gone on one date with them, but we want to like, we're both like consensually wanting to have sex. And how do you navigate that? And how do you navigate desires? Um, I feel like a lot of your work revolves around that too so can you talk a little bit about like positive relationship styles and like navigating these conversations yeah I mean I think it's so interesting because we've been in a relationship for so long and like have not been like just casually hooking up with people other Mm -hmm. than like really like talking about ourselves with each other you know and so um, I think that I may have some unrealistic expectations of what yeah. that would look like because, like, the level <laughs> oh, of conversation that I'm having right. yeah. are, like, so I've deep. had, like, more casual relationships, so I would say... Uh, <laughs> they're, like, a... Yeah, I'm, like, a really intense person. Yeah. <laughs> I have, like, really intense conversations with people no matter how early no matter yeah. how early. Yeah. 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 Um, but I'm always just, like, can we talk about, like, what you like with your body and right. think, I know we're about to just 
do this in a second, but can we yeah can we have a little like, brief tidbit? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I feel like I jump there too, and I'm like, yeah, it's like do you know, like talk about your yes no maybe list before you yeah, date. Exactly. So you're you're yeah. self aware. You can bring that to someone. Yeah. And people are like, what the fuck? Are yeah. Like, no. And like, no, no, literally, what I was thinking, I was like, yeah, you're like what will won't list. Yeah. Like think about that and the yeah. way that you share it with each other. I'm like, right. I'm like, I'm, I'm but like, like I'm just, but I'm thinking about like folks who are like going on a first date. They've maybe had a couple of drinks. Like they go, like they're not used to having vulnerable, intimate talks. Like how do they start to have really intentional consent for good sex, which mm-hmm. I know you talk about a lot too, like good sex versus bad sex, you mm-hmm. know? So like, how do we, have like for folks who are not as in tune with their vulnerability and intimacy quite yet and yeah. are trying to get there yeah but yeah. are struggling yeah. yeah well yeah I think that this definitely is all about consent work and I think the thing is um we're not taught how to be consensual with ourselves you know mm-hmm. just the society that we're in teaches us to push past our limits right the jobs that we might have the educational environments that we're in mm-hmm. all yeah. kind of incentivize us like being what other people want us to be right performing and i think even within that even just starting in non-sexual situations it's scary to ask like what do i actually want because it might cause you to have to change some things in your life and it might cause you to feel unhappy mm-hmm. with where you're at in your life. And so I think like being brave enough to, or like finding the space to ask that question in your personal space of like, what do I want? Mm-hmm. And then bringing that into your sexual processing. And I think all healthy sexuality has to start with yourself because mm-hmm. in the hookup culture, if people are looking for something in partners, like, it is it's fine to have casual sex but the more self-aware you are of what you're looking for the less Mm -hmm. likely you are to turn other people into objects that you're using to sort of gratify things within yourself Mm, and so i think that if you have that level of self-awareness um which involves processing a lot of shame and a lot of the ways that your desire has been socialized Mm -hmm. and how your sexuality has developed those are all very uncomfortable questions, right? Like, yeah, what was yeah. I processing when mm-hmm. I was 14, 15, 9, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, where did my scripts around sexuality come from? Mm-hmm. Because when, especially for queer people, you come out and you're like, oh, that was my, my before life. Now I'm yeah. out. Now I'm, like, in touch with my desires. Now I'm, like, great. <laughs> right? And I wish yeah. it happened like that. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. You did, but like, you're out. And you cut this shit. Yeah. And you're like, oh, my <laughs> desires are just, um, no. <laughs> like, I mean, I think it's interesting because um, we have this workshop, Decoding Consent, Mm -hmm. um, and we've done it with, like, groups of athletes, and so one of the Mm -hmm. ways that we talk about this is thinking of when you're playing, like, a team sport. Mm -hmm. So I played a lot of team sports. I played volleyball, basketball, rugby, Mm -hmm. Um, and when you're playing a team sport, like, when you're with a team that you've been playing with a lot, you don't need to speak as much because you know where that person's going. You know, like, how they play. You know their body language. Right. If you're playing a pickup game and you don't know those people, the level of communication needs to be so much higher mm-hmm. if you're going to achieve your goals, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, part of it is thinking of it... Um, 
as a game, but not in the way of thinking of your like partner as your opponent, right. but instead thinking of your partner as your teammate, mm, right? Yes. And that's the biggest difference. And so, like, part of the way, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So part of the way that we talk about this oh. is thinking of communication styles. Right. And so, like, mm-hmm. thinking, and we like went all in on the athletic metaphor. So I'm like going to use those because I'm yeah. really yeah. proud of coming up with those. So I'd yeah, we were like, we're going to talk to athletes. What's like a good sports metaphor? Yeah, we're like, there's so many bad sports metaphors, oh, like, bad. what's a good one? So I don't know if you're aware of volleyball, is that, like, a reference that you would have if I use that as an example? I, I know I sports kind of are know really about volleyball. So you can just say I, it. No, I'll explain the position, <laughs> um, but, like, so just imagine volleyball court, right? There's, like, a mm-hmm. volleyball net in the middle. There are six people on each side. Okay. They each have positions, right? Um, it's like a little, don't you think doubles tennis would be like a better? No, because it's no, I'm it's so important. Okay. No, it's really it's important. Like so six people on each no, no, side. No, like I don't I know if that's related. No, yeah. it's so important. It's so okay. we all have sub personas. We all have like yeah. different parts of ourselves. Yeah. Oh, right? ooh, I like ooh. that. Yeah. Ooh, they're your personas. Okay, I get it. Oh, I get it. Each have personas on the court. I really like that. So volleyball. I played volleyball for eight years. Um, so you need to think about the people in volleyball. The front row is usually offense. The back row is defense right and often when the front row players I was an outside hitter I did not play the back row Mm -hmm. because I was not good at defense because I was not good at being down on the ground and Mm -hmm. getting the fastballs I was only good at hitting people in the face right yeah I was like what I did so context right so now communication styles so aggressive communication style you can think of as offense right Mm. you can think of that as the outside hitter right and this person sees themselves every single conversation is a game is a competition so they become like the devil's advocate they Mm. sometimes when you're speaking to them and everyone holds these different communication styles so i'm saying it as though this is like this person's always aggressive Mm -hmm. but it's it's a mode that someone gets into right so when you're being aggressive it's like you don't even necessarily believe what it is that you're saying. Mm. It's just about winning that point. And, like, I was also a <laughs> yeah. debater, right? So you can see, like, for yep. a long time, I was a very aggressive person. I went by nasty. I, like, was an outside hitter. I was a debater. And, like, everything was somehow a competition. Mm-hmm. And that makes a lot of sense when people feel insecure and feel like their points aren't valid, mm-hmm. that they become kind of overly aggressive in right. defending their positions in order to get acceptance or to be seen as experts or to be seen as, like, knowledgeable mm-hmm. in things that they don't feel like they're recognized in, right? Well, and just in terms of sexuality, if you're not totally, like, I'm cool with what I want, and I mm-hmm. think that other people are going to be cool with that, too, mm-hmm. you might be aggressive about it. You might right. be like, this right. is just what this is, and mm-hmm. you're going to be fine with it. Right. right, and, like, masculine people are trained to be aggressive, right? Mm-hmm. They're trained to, like, aggressively pursue partners, aggressively mm-hmm. defend their desires, mm-hmm. and a lot of that comes from insecurity, right? Like, this, right. if someone says no to you, like, convincing them to say yes is about your inability to be yeah. okay with, like, you're still worthy if that person yeah. doesn't want to be with you, right. Right? right? Or, like, it's okay for you to have that desire even if that person doesn't want to do that with you right, right now, yeah. right? So, ag- aggressive communication right Mm -hmm. and then there's passive communication and so passive is what femmes are trained to do right Mm -hmm. we're trained to follow along with what our masculine partners want if we're Mm -hmm. with masculine partners or even just masculine folks yeah Yeah, just like masculine folks in general or just like people around us Mm -hmm. to like follow along to um and so for me when i think of this in terms of volleyball right there is a position in volleyball a lot of people don't know about this position but it's called libero and the libero is this really interesting individual who wears a different color shirt 
um, who only comes in the back row mm. and they don't actually have to um, like tap out and like switch positions with mm. someone okay. like it's not a formal like um, what's it called it's not a formal what's the word when you switch with someone in a sport um, substitution yes it's not a formal <laughs> substitution it's just like they can just come in and take over for someone yeah, okay. and they usually take over for actually an outside hitter or for a middle hitter so they take over oh, for an aggressive mm. like offensive player and they come in and play in the back row the oh. entire time so wow. when say an outside hitter goes to the back they'll just switch and they'll play in the outside row until that person would come back to the front that person will come in and go into the front row and they'll switch with the next person so they play in the back row the entire game they're never not playing right they're never not playing yeah they're never not playing but they're always in defense oh my god oh my god i completely (laughs) see that in myself yeah yeah but so this person's position is always to be on the receiving end right right Mm -hmm. and to always like defend Mm -hmm. the team against any sort of violation, Mm. any sort of thing, and they take on an immense amount of responsibility Mm. because the only way that you can get a point is if the ball drops, right? Right. So almost always, like, if we receive a point, it's the offense's, like, win, right? Mm -hmm. If we lose a point, if the other team gets a point, it's the defense's fault. Mm -hmm. So it's always their fault if we lose a point, right? And they never get a break. They never get a break. They're never... Oh, my God, this is really good analogy. This is good. Good analogy. It's making me think a lot about a conversation that I had the other night with um with my lover and we were talking about like my um my ideas around initiating and like things that have happened to like not have happened but like my experiences with dating other people and who I've dated and like what what that's like with initiating sex and things like that and I was like well yeah I've always been with masculine folks and and I'm like well and you know this a lot about me I was like a lot of times I'm always like yes of course I want to initiate these things yes I'm this and this and then it's like when reality sets in and I'm with my lover it's like it's like you know I kind of get into this space where I'm like okay I have to be okay with receiving and then you have to let me know when you want me to do something to you because that's just what I have to do because I can't be the one being like no I want you to do this you know I have to like have like this like extreme permission for it first or be like okay you're done with me so now I can focus on you instead of me like being like no I want to focus on you you can't focus on me right Right. now right yeah 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 Yeah. totally (laughs) so like there's this idea that you're either the aggressive one or the passive one Mm -hmm. that you're like either on offense or on defense and so that's where the next communication style comes in which surprisingly or maybe not surprisingly this is what most people identified as in Mm -hmm. our anonymous surveys Um, And that's passive-aggressive, right? And so what that means is that you are technically in defense, but you're using a defensive position to do offense, right? And so what this position... Like, a really good example of this is the middle blocker in volleyball. So this is the person who's in the middle front. They actually pretty rarely actually hit the ball. Like, it's usually the outside hitter who hits the ball, but they're Mm -hmm. usually the tallest person on the team. And what they do is whoever's about to hit the ball on the other side, they jump up and they create a wall above the um, net, and it can 
basically like the ball will hit their hand and go straight down to the mm. floor, oh, right? Yes. right? And yeah. so that block huh. is technically a defensive position, right? But right. it operates like a uh, like, like a spike, right? right? Because it goes straight down to yeah. the floor, right? Yeah. So it's a it's an offensive defensive yeah, move, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's interesting because there's this argument of like are middle hitters defensive players or offensive mm. players? They're both, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what passive aggressive like communication styles look like is that maybe the person that you're communicating with doesn't realize that what you're saying is actually a dig or is actually like offensive mm-hmm. um but it's coded in or a is way actually a boundary right mm-hmm. but it's coded in a way that um seems passive right mm-hmm. and so like often this can seem like sarcasm or like throwing shade or like mm-hmm. um leaving hints yeah leaving hints and like often is associated with like manipulative femmes right mm-hmm. um but when you actually understand why it happens is that if you don't feel like you have the power to assertively express your boundaries then but you don't want to be just a passive recipient mm-hmm. this is a way for you to still do what is socially acceptable but actually defend yourself right mm-hmm. and so like passive aggression like people love to hate on passive aggression right they're like yeah. oh so passive aggressive right. annoying. just say what you think yeah, yeah. I mean. right. but like there really are negative incentives to saying what you mean Mm-hmm. and like this person is trying to stand up for themselves more than right. just like be detached right? right and so like it makes a lot of sense that this is how we feel and this is I think the most common communication style when you're talking about intimacy mm-hmm. is like I'm not going to tell you what I want but I'm going to hint at it right. in some sort of kind of like body language mm-hmm. pun like mixed layers mm-hmm. like <laughs> like yes comment yeah. that mm-hmm. you need to pick up on sending you stuff and making I'm fun of it right yeah, yeah. like that, that like stream of emojis exactly like and <laughs> especially when you think about how like the level of emotional intelligence that it takes to actually pick up on that right. it becomes very challenging and especially yeah. when you're talking with men or masculine folks and they're like i just feel so confused yeah and i just like do not understand the messages that are being sent to me <laughs> yeah and it's like you know what i actually understand what you're yeah. talking about mm-hmm. um that doesn't mean that like you should then continue to be aggressive right, right. like because sometimes messages mm-hmm. you're getting are boundaries just not communicated in the way that you're like aggressive bros would communicate it right but that is like a way of expressing a boundary Mm -hmm. so teaching people to really understand and identify communication styles can help you to see like is there another layer to what's going on here Mm -hmm. or potentially should I be more assertive with what I'm saying and that's the fourth communication style is being assertive Um, And what's really interesting is with the last three positions that I talked about, we're talking defensive libero, offensive outsider, outside hitter, defense defense offense middle hitter. (laughs) When I start to think about assertive communication styles or assertiveness in the Mm -hmm. volleyball court, I immediately think of the setter and the captain. And I'm not thinking of, they're just not oriented to the other team. So um, they become assertive with their own teammates, right? right. So the setter, mm, so the yeah. setter was the other position that I ended up playing, um, and the setter rarely, like sometimes, but rarely actually like engages with the ball and the other team because if they get the first hit, then they can't set, right? So they can't be the first person to receive the ball, so they mm-hmm. can't be in defense. Mm-hmm. And if they just set the ball, they can't hit it, right? So they're rarely the person who's actually hitting the offense. Okay. So they are the middle between the defense and the offense that keeps the team going and te- yeah. keeps the team communicating. And they're usually the one that's communicating the most on the field. Yeah. So when I think of 
assertive communication, I think of the setter telling everyone what they need. Like defense, I need you here. Offense, I'm going to you. I'm going to you outside hitter. We're doing this play. We're doing this thing. Mm-hmm. And they're just not communicating or even like often their back is to the other side. They're just mm-hmm. not oriented to the other side. They're oriented to their team. Right. And so like that's the biggest difference between the other communication styles mm-hmm. and assertiveness is that in the other communication styles, you're interacting with your partner mm-hmm. as though they're the opponent. Right. And in the assertive communication style, you're interacting with your partner as though they're your teammate and you have shared goals. Yes. And you're like primarily like self-aware. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, when relating this back to like queer femmes and like femmes in, in general is like, I think of the shame around being assertive. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. You know, like there's so much, if someone's assertive, they're called bossy. If mm-hmm. someone's self-aware, like there's just so many negative terms that get thrown Mm -hmm. at femmes when we try to assert ourselves and we try to like find that like self-awareness and that confidence to speak up Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden we get shot down for being Mm -hmm. assertive and so then that just kind of fizzles out because it's too, it's too risky. Right. 100%. Well, and like as femme and like gender variant people, like how many of us were able to communicate assertively in our families, you know? Mm-hmm. That's so real. And thinking about like how, like our communication styles within our families and how that carries over into how we're going to communicate in relationships mm-hmm. and with just sex and everything mm-hmm. in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So that's probably the tool that I would most suggest for folks who are just like, because I think that you can give like scripts, you can give right. like tools and stuff, but mm-hmm. it's actually about empathy and being present with the person that you're yeah. talking to, and that means it's going to look totally different all the time. And so at least being aware of what is the communication style that you're using and that this mm-hmm. other person is using, mm-hmm. and what are the implications of that, yeah. I think can help a lot in figuring out what to say and when to say it. Right? And That's working beautiful. through and working through your own shame about your desire. Yes, because mm-hmm. yeah. like you have to be confident enough in your desires to be able to be assertive like that is a prerequisite to being Mm -hmm. assertive and like also knowing that there are negative incentives for being assertive like if you're going to continue being assertive you need to be ready Mm -hmm. for people to be assholes about it you know Mm -hmm. and like that's not for everyone and like Mm -hmm. I totally understand passive aggression like I get it yeah but I also think that it can fuel sexual violence right and so Mm -hmm. it's a challenge for all of us yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah well and I think about the way that people because I feel like a lot of times in different relationships I had this one relationship like after I first moved here and it was more of a casual one but I like they specifically told me that they loved um how aggressive I was with them and then it just turned into me having to be in that seat all the time yeah. and then I think I think in general like with other relationships I always go back into that seat of being more passive or mm-hmm. in the beginning until I you know until you know how someone's going to come at you but it would be lovely to be able to be in a place where it's like you know someone's not going to use your assertiveness just because they just don't want to have to make decisions about anything but you also don't want to be so passive to where you can't your voice can't be heard mm-hmm. yeah. it's like having a balance 
I mean, it's complicated because when femmes are assertive, it's characterized as aggression. Mm-hmm. And when masculine folks mm-hmm. are assertive, it's characterized as being oh. passive or passive-aggressive mm-hmm. or, like, mm-hmm. not manly enough. Mm-hmm. And so, like, we get mixed messages about how our communication styles are coming across, right. even if we're actually just being assertive. Right. And so, like, you need to be rooted in your own evaluation of mm-hmm. that. But that can also lead to, like, some narcissism and, like, no, I know how I'm communicating and I'm not going <laughs> to listen to your feedback yeah. about yeah. how you're that right, right. so um, it's like a polarity right. yeah. yeah also deconstruct your own internal gender binary mm-hmm. prerequisite to anything right, right. yeah yeah. Yeah. All yeah. yeah yeah and i feel like that talking about that like st- like checking in with yourself kind of ties into like accountability which like mm-hmm. Rahel and i are always coming back to and like how do we hold ourselves accountable and how do we hold our communities accountable right. and how do we have those hard conversations instead mm-hmm. of like just treating people like they're disposable like I feel like there was this meme that was going around recently, and I can't remember it, what it was now, but it was basically talking about how everyone's so quick to be like, goodbye, goodbye, like, throwing all these people out of my life, like, I feel, I feel so free, I'm throwing everyone away, like, is this great, mm-hmm. like, you're trash, you're trash, you're trash, trash, goodbye. The purge. You know, and I feel like that gets applauded. But and then, but in reality, like, it's about having these tough conversations being like, mm-hmm. oh, maybe I was really passive-aggressive to you. Like, thanks for showing me that. And, like, how can I check in with myself? Right. And how did your, like, converse, like how did your style in, inform my passive-aggression? And, like, how right. do we have these hard conversations? Well, and also how that person who is constantly throwing people away never they one never check in with themselves to see like who like who they are and why they want to throw people away but then also like they end up being that person that's like oh I'm so lonely why doesn't anyone want to be with me why doesn't anyone want to hang out with me Mm. and then I mean because I've had I've have friends who are who are like that and it's like well you know let's sit down and have a conversation about like what you want in your life or like why like these people are so disposable to you yeah. it's interesting this came up in our um training that we did yesterday mm-hmm. and one of the things that came up was someone was like i feel like in my community we expect perfection mm-hmm. and so whenever there's any sort of issue mm-hmm. it like people are just like so upset about and like i can't believe this is happening in this community yeah and part of what we ended up teasing out is like so if you think of the difference between harm and conflict right like or like conflict and abuse um like abuse being like intentional use of power um to assert dominance and then conflict being like a disagreement Mm -hmm. um that sometimes like in communities where we're all supposed to be on the same page all the time any sort of conflict gets perceived as abuse or Mm -hmm. as harm um and so the problem is that we just start getting like mad that things are not going great or we're like we need to have like a circle like because things are getting abusive Mm -hmm. and like we think that there should be circles around conflict um before it becomes abusive and that like in my perfect world there would still be conflict because people have different opinions but it wouldn't escalate to abuse because Mm -hmm. we'd like address it before it escalated Right. right and so like what does perfection look like in your relationships and in your communities it's not like unity or like perfection perfect like agreement all the time it's like having a way to address conflict before it becomes like more harmful or abusive caveat there though i do feel like there's this pressure on femmes to be agreeable and to forgive people Mm -hmm. and not to cut people off and that toxic people take advantage of that and like 
only you know which people in your life are ready for the truth, yes. mm-hmm. which people can take accountability, yes. right. and which people... Like, cutting someone out of your life doesn't need to be permanent. It's like exactly. a way of establishing yeah. a boundary of, like, you're not mm-hmm. able to fuck with me at this point. Or it can if that's where you're at, if that's what needs to happen, and knowing Absolutely. what the difference what the difference means and knowing that sometimes because even even that meme that does go around I think knowing that when it's time Mm -hmm. to do that like okay all of all of the people in my life are toxic so they Mm -hmm. all have to go and I have to cultivate new relationships and maybe I'll be lonely for a while knowing like the difference between like the intricacies of all of that because it's yeah there's so much absolutely yeah absolutely there's definitely like nuance to that like there's not it's not like one or the other mm-hmm. yeah it's about balance mm-hmm. and like actually listening to yourself and your needs mm-hmm. right you know always coming back what do that I want <laughs> what do I need yeah. Yeah. what's going on with me yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and like especially having like people that you trust and like yeah. friends around you mm-hmm. and like partners that you can like actually talk to so right. you're not making those decisions alone yeah. mm-hmm. because that can lead to just being like did I make the right decision yeah. forever and like really talking through it with someone can make you feel a lot more confident in the choices that you make or like give you some ideas or like innovative ways of approaching a problem because like sometimes it can be like I don't want to get rid of this person I don't want to cut them out of my life but I don't know how I can continue to survive with them having the influence that they have yeah. over me and like sometimes just having like a like a brainstorm or like a group mm-hmm. like we have like more of a femme circle in Miami and just yeah. like bringing folks together and being like okay this is what's going on I like we're like a little think tank like Yay. solving problems and trying to mass like a mastermind group with yeah. our businesses our families yeah, and yeah. all yeah. that good stuff more fun so like yeah, like going off of that, I guess, like, can you talk a little bit about what femme means to you? A little bit about, like, your journey to and around femme? Yeah, oh my gosh. So, a little bit of information about me against us. Um, I went to an all girls school almost my whole life. Mm. Yeah, all girls school. Mm-hmm. There were boys there. Like, there <laughs> all girls school. Like, there are, like, adult men who went to that school. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went to an all girls Catholic school. Um, from fourth grade through the end of high school. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, like, real, like, sisterhood. Wow. Like, my life, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, I was a re- retreat leader, like, real in it. Um, I used to want that to be my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, yeah. I had a hardcore, like, I was like, I want to go to off-girls school. I want to do this. Mm-hmm. And my mom was like, oh, we can't afford it. Have fun <laughs> in public school. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was a whole thing. It was like there are like it was mostly like really rich girls. Mm -hmm. um, Is like a really relevant thing, and there were only between like two and then four black people in my grade. Um, But we're talking about Miami, so this Mm -hmm. is like almost all Latinx people. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of whom identify as white though, until leaving Miami, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But so that's like a little bit of context for me and my like sisterhood that shaped my sense of self, Um, and. I, like, have really gone through a lot of, like, gender exploration of, like, am Mm. I trans? Am I, like, is it about my body? Is it about my expression? And then, of course, I, like, studied gender. So, like, everything is a mythos, right? Just, like, all this internal processing. Um, And then I also think that, like, ultimately I was, like, okay, I grew up around a lot of drag queens as a young person, and I really learned what femininity was from drag queens, and, like, I love makeup, and I love glitter, and I love velvet, and I love all this stuff, and I felt, like, this lack and this, like, 
sadness when I was mm-hmm. only presenting masculine mm-hmm. and I realized that I felt like I needed to present masculine in order for my non-binary identity to be like recognized and validated yeah. um, and then I really reconnected with my femininity and then I was like does that mean that I can't be non-binary mm-hmm. and then I was like no I'm non-binary and I'm a femme and I'm female bodied and that's okay yes. mm-hmm. and then I really started to explore more like as a black person, my understanding of gender just is different mm. from yes. the like dominant gender paradigm. And I think that in a lot of ways, like blackness is like gender nonconforming, blackness yes. is trans. And so Always. like even <laughs> just being a black femme means that I'm non binary, right? Like yes. I just reject the dominant <laughs> white paradigm of gender. Well, because we don't fit in it uh, at all. Like when I think about it too, like I was talking about this with someone, this was years ago, about how easy it would be for within like our family communities, it would be easy for our families to accept us as queer, as non binary, as femme, as whoever we are, if like our families could see blackness as queer yeah just already regardless of whether someone is straight or or queer within the black community totally because we already operate completely outside of what the norm we're so far from it exactly like it just is queer Mm -hmm. like it's not gay but it is queer right and like it is non-binary like it's not the binary that people are talking about when Mm -hmm. they're talking about men and women that's just Mm -hmm. not what we are and so like that's given me the freedom to express my feminist and express my femininity without Mm -hmm. losing my gender and like Mm -hmm. what I genuinely feel is the way that I relate to my body and my like social gender identity you know um so for me feminist is like expression but it's also like a state of mind right Mm -hmm. and like part of what I lost and like felt lacking wasn't just like the velvet and all of that it was also that like I think it's radical to be femme I think Mm -hmm. like this idea of like me rejecting femininity or rejecting being a woman was really like difficult for me yeah as someone who was like well but I don't identify as a woman Mm -hmm. and I don't want to like reject my like feminist though in doing that and so I feel like the label of femme that I really actively use like when people ask me my gender I'm like non-binary femme Mm -hmm. um like I really embrace that because I feel like that's the way for me to still say like I center the feminine in my life I center like not necessarily women but femmes for sure in my Mm -hmm. life um and that is like an act of resistance against a like masculine patriarchal world um so for me it's like a political statement it's a mindset Mm -hmm. and it's also an expression Mm -hmm. it makes me really happy it makes me really happy and it also makes me like i don't know like i guess validated in a way where i'm like i where i see black womanhood i guess and black feminists yeah. yeah. So I've had a complicated relationship with the like idea of femme. I think um, I do. My gender identity is like androgyne or like androgynous. Mm-hmm. Um, and growing up, like experiencing sort of compulsory femininity and being kind of dressed up as a quote-unquote little girl and like really feeling like that was like very foreign to me and that I didn't connect with the ways that. Mm-hmm girls were supposed to present and especially in relation to boys like the whole like yeah I grew up in a very like white Christian 
like gender binary environment mm -hmm. and it just didn't really make sense to me mm -hmm. and so I think that when I came out I was like okay there are these like alt ways to be feminine yeah. um like a little more like punk or a little more like grunge mm -hmm. um or hippie hippie also yeah <laughs> right like all of these kind of like alt yeah. femininities and then I was like, I just feel really not seen in my myself and my identity. And then moving into a like preppy East Coast college environment, um, my gender identity was kind of shifting into being very masculine presenting. And I was like, oh, people get this. Like people get that I'm like this mm -hmm. masculine gay female, and they respect me, mm -hmm. and they like are treating me in different ways. Mm -hmm. And this feels really good because growing up as like quote-unquote girl what it felt like was not being seen yeah right yeah. and so to feel like people then could see me I was like well this feels good so maybe this is my gender identity and also questioning whether whether I was trans whether like which aspects of that socialization I rejected and through our relationship we've done a lot of processing and I've felt like much more seen in my actual gender identity so that it is okay for me to like veer back into things that did seem to invalidate my presentation for a while yeah. and I think mm -hmm. living in a warm climate just being more comfortable with like mm -hmm. tunics and like jumpsuits and, and glorious like, long hair yes, yeah and like growing up my hair was a big part of that definitely yeah. um and yeah so I think that like femme for me is very queer and mm -hmm. is more of like a chosen expression mm -hmm. of femininity yeah and feels more like being integrated and I don't right. think it's in conflict with being masculine right. mm -hmm. but that it is like an important part of myself that yeah. is more like being relational and being attuned to myself mm. and practicing herbalism Fem energy right, right. Fem energy and yeah. I was really missing that from my life yeah. it's interesting because we talk about this and I present much more femme in terms of the way that I dress mm -hmm. but I have a very masculine aggressive personality mm -hmm. um, like in spaces like and I, I it just feels natural to me. Like that's yeah. just what I'm like. I mean, you can catch that from the volleyball stuff, like, yes, debate course. and rugby and like outsider <laughs> and like just in social spaces. Like yeah. I also like have felt much more comfortable expressing myself organically with masculine people, where mm -hmm. I feel like I can be aggressive and assertive mm -hmm. without it like making people uncomfortable. Yeah. Um. And Lee has like a much more feminine personality and like I mean that in terms of like sun and moon energy in terms yes. of like we specifically think of it like masculine being electric or like discreet and like mm -hmm. like piercing yeah. action, -oriented. Um, action oriented and then feminine being magnetic yes. um, and like those Very. being two different like energies and then also like the sun and moon like the the moon is like magnetic the mm -hmm. sun is like electric right mm -hmm. so like that's kind of how we think of masculine and feminine mm -hmm. and when it comes to our personalities like I am a much more masculine person yeah. and Lee is a much more feminine person mm -hmm. and so it's interesting how those are kind of the opposite of our presentations to the world mm -hmm. and that to me brings a lot of balance internally to yeah. be very masculine yes. but to present very feminine mm -hmm. and then to have a partner who's like the like inverse of that right. and that's part of why I think we make such a good fusion mm -hmm. yes it's I beautiful I, I love that too that there can be like because I know oftentimes there's this like uncomfort uncomfortableness or something with with people like 
being full in in the energies that they give or in even knowing what energies that they give like regardless of what their presentation is mm-hmm. and I love that you all like do that in like mm-hmm. just such an effortless way yeah. and you can like talk about it too and mm-hmm. in an effortless way um yeah. so that's really really important like yeah. to to know it's come from so much conversation though like it's yeah effortless but like oh my goodness so yeah. we have road tripped around the united states at least twice like yeah. in terms of full circumference of the united states mm-hmm. like the number of hours that we've spent together in the car like just locked in a car yeah. Yeah. Like people do not understand yeah. like we lived on the road together for like six yeah. months straight like, wow. we did, like a tour in europe Mm-hmm. Yeah, we lived in like, Europe for nine months together, yeah. but like in like rural, like everyone's seventy five years <laughs> old and everything closes at four p.m. <laughs> no. type, like oh, Europe. Like, like, yeah, so like well. there was a period we didn't even have any Wi-Fi. Like oh. the thing is, like we talked about so we've much. talked so much. I love like love what's it. so weird about it is like we could talk to people and like. I love hearing the little nuances of, like, different ways that you're presenting different things that we've talked about. I'm like, ooh, mm-hmm. that's a really great phrasing of that. Ooh, I haven't heard you describe mm-hmm. it that way. Mm-hmm. But, like, I've heard all the stories. Like, I've heard mm-hmm. all these descriptions. Like, yeah. we have talked about this, like, yeah. extensively. Yeah. Like, we spent all our time talking. Right? Yeah. And I think processing in a, like, very action-oriented world yeah. is, like, a very fun yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. No, yeah. yeah. We have like mapped everything in our lives. We've mapped our parents' lives. We've mapped yeah. like everything. I want to do that. Like, I want to map, map, map all of these lives and like where where I fit in yeah. with that. And and then that in turn gives me an understanding of like where all of the things like of how I vibe with myself and with other people. Like having a complete understanding of that. Mm-hmm. Is exactly. So important. Yeah. Like we have this like kind of passion for psychoanalysis yes. and for like it's archetype important. work and stuff yeah. and yeah. just really like and it's not like we're like I'm a psychotherapist like obviously not yeah but I think cool. that understanding yourself is like so important and like having someone that you genuinely feel will love you unconditionally and that yeah. will not judge you for like connecting with parts of your shadow mm-hmm. is so deeply it's important. So important and like it's taught me to love myself <laughs> so much more yeah, than yeah. I ever did by yes. myself you right. know right. and mm-hmm. to like have the courage to face pieces of myself that I really mm-hmm. would not have been able to do without like an exploring partner yes. yeah I think too that's like I I feel like that's also just how you and I like mm-hmm. are able to be so open and honest and like gentle with each other as friends mm-hmm. too because we like we like are so real with each other about like literally how we feel about things or where we're coming from with things and even throughout like various processing of of stuff like we we went to Palm Springs a couple of weeks ago and like saw on the Insta yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was so much fun it was so much fun, it was so much fun. and it was a lot it was a lot and and so coming back like I processed a lot of how I felt about various things um but like I think a couple of days ago I realized that part of the reason why I like felt so many different ways with a lot of with things that went on and the trip was because of how I felt like about my body and how much my body has changed over the last couple of years mm-hmm. and and so and then I talked to Karen about that and I was like oh just on my body and these things and you understand <laughs> but also like, like when Rahel like after the t- after the trip we like processed through some things that came up and like 
Rahel made me more aware of like the root of my actions and like mm-hmm. the the reasoning behind where I was coming from and like like a, like a self-awareness of like where my anxieties were coming from I was like I know that I'm being anxious and like this is my response to anxiety mm-hmm. but I wasn't like exploring like oh this is why this situation is bringing up this particular form of anxiety for me yeah, and totally. this is like the response that I'm getting to that and like if there's just so much I think that you're right like we can do the self-work by ourselves and like that's powerful and that is important but doing the self-work with, like, interpersonal relationships and being, like, hey, like, I noticed you're anxious and, like, that caused this, like, really painful thing for me, like, what the fuck, like, you know, and, like, calling each other in and having those hard conversations is so healing and you can move forward and, like, I've learned so much from our friendship and, like, learned so much about, like, communication and, like, about, like, you know, like, about myself and I think that it does take, um... It does take self-work, but it takes really interpersonal work. And then also, like, the work that you're doing is expanding that interpersonal work to, like, community work. And yeah. there's just mm-hmm. there's layers to it, and it can't just be an internal conversation. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, and, yeah, when with what, how you were explaining that, I was seeing, like, it just does link right back into transformative justice, right? right? Yeah. Because what do healing spaces look like, and what does it look like to cultivate emotional intelligence yeah. mm-hmm. and how to express yourself yeah. and that takes processing yeah. and that takes trust and yeah. that takes relationships so it's yeah. very important but so yeah. like I have a question that is very I don't know if y'all are going to have an answer for it but I've been mm-hmm. it's been on my mind and I'm like how when it comes to healing how do we is there a way I don't even to condense it for folks who don't have as much time for it because there's this thing of like I think of like single moms who have five kids who like really need healing and they don't have time they don't have time for circles for they don't have time for to to go to a workshop on the weekends like they need to grocery shop they need to do this how do we they need to sleep they need to (laughs) work you know multiple jobs like how do we how do we have different layers of accessibility to healing so that, like, folks who really need it can get it, who don't have the... Like, time is such a huge resource yeah. that, like, yeah. folks mm-hmm. sometimes just don't have. And healing really does take time. It does. Right. I think that what's complicated about this is that there are, like, two layers to healing that I really perceive, right? And there's, like, the somatic, like, in-your-body trauma-is-held piece. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's the, like, talking through it and processing, right. right? And I feel like often people will, like, separate those and be like, I'm just going to talk about everything. And I'm like, yo, that's still in your body, though. Yeah. Until you actually do the work to yeah. release that, you're not going to, it's going to yeah, keep showing up it. in all your relationships, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And then sometimes people are like, oh, I got rid of it in my body, but they didn't really make the space to, yeah. like, process it and integrate mm-hmm. it into the way that they're acting. Yeah. And so, like, those things will reform in your body yeah. again, right? And so, like, my instinct to respond is that there are great somatic exercises and, like, breath work that can be done in, like, five-minute, ten-minute things. But Mm -hmm. then I'm like, yeah, but if you're doing it right, shit is going to come up. Mm -hmm. And, like, you're going to need the space to process that. And I feel like Mm -hmm. there's this, like, myth that, like, oh, like, I'll just do my meditation for five minutes. Mm -hmm. And then I will, like, compartmentalize that. Mm -hmm. And I'll be able to go on with the rest (laughs) of my day. And I feel like... that's what it looks like, you're not doing it right. Right. And I feel like whenever I do somatic exercises, like, 
that shit is in my face for days yeah. like just for days I have like shit popping up uh, I have mm-hmm. like these thoughts coming up mm-hmm. and then there's this question of like do I engage with it should I do more tapping should I do more yeah. like whatever it is yeah. that I'm doing and then like if I engage with the somatic experience or exercise when I'm actually like in that space mm-hmm. I could do that same technique for an hour two right. hours and like still feel like yes a sense of relief but still feel um mm-hmm. like there's more work to do yeah, yeah so I mean it has to be okay to be in a state of coping yeah right and yeah. sometimes that is what healing mm-hmm. yeah. looks like right is just being like I'm taking care of my business I'm taking mm-hmm. care of my family I'm doing as much as I can to take care of myself. Right. And that's why like we do have to accept when people show up to spaces and aren't fully integrated yeah. and healed and are it's still messy. going through it because like yeah. don't even want to open up about expect, their stories. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. We shouldn't even ex- I feel like it's like weird to expect people to be completely ready and to know everything about mm-hmm. all of the things that are happening with them. Yeah. And I don't know, when I think about, like, people not having the time to heal, I think about, I think a lot about um, the black women in my families who raise kids by themselves. But I think to really reimagine the way that we, like, think about that healing process and, like, being like, oh, I see that, you know, you're doing all this work, you're doing this, let me take your kids, like, that's, mm-hmm. let me take your kids for a weekend and right. you go do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, really yeah. thinking about how we can be there for for the people in our lives in that right. way. And, like, if we specifically can't do that, finding someone who can. Mm-hmm. But then I think that also it brings up to the table about how like resources are spread out and like where to go mm-hmm. if you don't if you don't have the resource like knowing where to go to someone who does have the resource and that person can be like yeah I have that here let me I know someone who can take care of that person's yeah. kid yeah. for this amount of time so that person can have like this time to heal and just mm-hmm. like the structural yeah. issues with the nuclear family structure okay. like, it, like, like that is not reasonable that it's is not, not actually making people right. able yeah. to be full humans mm-hmm. like having communities like working through this together yeah. is mm-hmm. healthier for the children healthier for the adults like mm-hmm. and this is something that we think about a lot as people who travel doing this sort of work like mm-hmm. there are folks who will come into a session of ours and it's not like it's not the most like we're just gonna dig really deep into our shit usually right. unless we're like in our hometown and we're like ready yeah. to keep going mm-hmm. it's more like we're gonna give you some tools to practice on your own and to right. like do uh, an experience um and like we're reiki practitioners and like we're healers and stuff so like we'll address it when it comes up in the space but there's this very real fear of opening stuff up with people and then leaving and then them needing to go back into their life with this thing being raw and like what does it look like for us to use that space to like really be there for that person Mm -hmm. um but then also be there for all the people and then also take accountability for like opening that up for them yeah like you open when you do a workshop you are opening a container and you're holding Mm -hmm. this you're holding this space for these folks and if you do a workshop right you know there's like a flow that really like creates this really beautiful container for folks to really like release right but then as soon as you leave that container collapses Mm -hmm. and then and everything and like I've had experiences of being part of like trainings or facilitations that open up like a lot of stuff yeah. and then even if folks are like oh I'll be there for you afterwards I'm like yo but what I need after this is like 
days. days. Yeah. Like, yeah. like, I need to, like, so dig days, into this, and right? I cannot expect that of you, and right. like, you cannot offer that to me, right. and that's, like, not what you're willing to yeah. do, mm-hmm. and not what I would want you to do, yeah. but, like, I, something's got to give. Right. Like, yeah. I just heard all this trauma from other people, I just shared really vulnerable mm-hmm. shit about myself, mm-hmm. and now I'm just, like, sitting with it. Right. Yes. Yeah. Like, after a workshop, I always give folks my email, but I'm like, and you can reach out personally, but, like, that's not enough. Like, they right. need to like, email and just be like, hey, I'm going right. to like, yeah. yeah. like, yeah. down. Yeah. What, what do I do? Right. Like, call it exactly. online. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I yeah. think that's something that I've been trying to do is um, I cre- like create workshops or worksheets, and I feel like I'll do that too. Like you have like leave behinds that yeah. like, and I have like a self care one for folks that like literally has examples of like walking through like a self care moment, yeah. and then like I like they can literally fill it out, and like so I think that there are ways that like when you're creating this contained space that you can leave people with tools, like you said. Yeah. There, mm-hmm. you know, you can say like, okay. We opened, like, this is a can of worms now that you're going to have and we're not going to be there. So, yeah. like, ha- here are some things that will help you process. Mm-hmm. I feel like people are surprised when they get our packets and our workshops. Even yeah. if it's, like, an hour and a half long workshop, it's, like, 10 pages. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pages. yeah. Minimum tw- 10 pages. Like, our last one was 25 pages. Yeah. yeah. And Ooh. I'm just like, okay, we're not going to get through all of this in this session, right. but you're going to go home and you're going to have, like, way more to dig into to, yeah. like, keep thinking about these lessons and yes. to, like, practice this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. A little more tangibly, though, I do think that, like, journaling is mm-hmm. something that most people can find yeah. a couple mm-hmm. minutes to right. do just to, like, check in with yourself. Because when you are in coping mode, what it's asking you to do is set yourself aside right. and finding just whatever space you can. Right. Even if it's just internally, it doesn't have to be, like, writing, right. you know, like, on the train or, yeah. like, when you're even hanging out with your kids. Like, right. just finding a little bit of space. Check in mm-hmm. with yourself. And then um, also this came up on a panel that we were listening to recently of, like, it doesn't have to look like what people think healing looks like. Like, yes. watching reality TV, mm-hmm. eating junk food that you like, yes. just doing something that's going to give you Lipstick some... Lipstick is a self-care. Right. Uh, yeah. okay. some positive energy, right? Ooh. Like, just, like, building some positive energy for yourself, like, whatever that looks like yes. is, is yeah. healing. Yeah. yeah, and, the, yeah, it was a really cool panel ad clip, um... But one of the things that came up was also, like, not every personal self-care thing needs to be political. Um, Mm -hmm. And, like, it's okay for you to, like, do the things. Like, if you want to shop, like, that's okay. Shopping is nice. Like, I get it. I do a little bit. Yeah, like, I get it. Like, oh, capitalism, whatever. But also, like, we need to do what we need to do. Um, And, like, if what we're fighting for is, like, joy and love and freedom and, like, connection, then, like, embracing that mm-hmm. can be what it means to be an activist. Yeah. You know? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yes. Hashtag yes. info. Yes. Hashtag info. Yes. Do you have any final questions? I don't think so. We, like, we went through all so of them much. naturally. Yeah, I love it. Makes me yes. so happy. Yes. I, do, I love that you brought up um, how healing sometimes like when you've done the work to like inside yourself to like work through like all of those tensions inside yourself but then like finally being in a place where you need to like voice things and talk about things like I love how you talked about that because I was like oh that's completely where I am now mm-hmm. I'm like the opposite I'm like I, yeah. I've like done the, the verbal processing the journaling the like self work mm. but my body is like your body yeah I told, and I it's been oh, like somatic 
stuff, you know? Yeah. I'm always like, I need to, like, dance. I'm so uncomfortable dancing. Yeah. Like, I, like something in me is just like, I know that's mm-hmm. a part of my healing process, but I'm mm-hmm. not there. <laughs> like, you know? Like, <laughs> and it's, our bodies do tell us the ways in which we need to heal. If yes. We mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 There are these uh, cute little online classes in somatics that mm-hmm. you can get that are more affordable than a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are like $30 for a few lessons, oh, and they, cool. they target different parts of your body. So oh, maybe we can put nice. a link yeah, to that absolutely. for folks. The yeah. other yeah. thing yeah. is, like, I feel like there's this, like, oh, yoga, everyone do yoga. Mm-hmm. Like, as much as that. But um, one thing that I really appreciate is yin yoga, mm-hmm. um, especially because it's something that you can practice more on your own, and yeah. it doesn't need to be around That's other people. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, like, not about... Like, other styles of yoga can often be about, like, the movement and right. can be, like, a lot of different positions. Mm-hmm. Yin yoga is about holding one position for, like, five plus minutes. Yeah. That's what I want in yeah. life. And, like, finding gentleness, not, like, mm-hmm. building strength. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I love, yeah. And it's, like, that. very painful. Like, not because, like, sometimes you're doing very normal positions where I'm, like, literally... Like, it didn't hurt at all in the beginning, and then it's just, like, deeply painful. But you get the kinds of, like, deep releases. Right. And, like, just, I'm, like, a very visual person, and I can just, like, feel and see and sense the things that are stored in my body. And, like, a lot Mm -hmm. of, like, uh, body talk, Mm -hmm. like, communicating with the parts of your body that are in pain or tight or whatever. Um, so that's something that I think yin yoga is also a really great practice and like whatever your flexibility, whatever your body type, whatever your like social interests are, like Mm -hmm. doing it on your own at home is a great practice. Yay. Well, so where can people find you on the interwebs if they want to book a workshop, if they want to chat? Yeah, so our website is timetospringup.org, um, to being T-O. So all spelled out. Okay. Yeah, and um, then social media is at time t o spring up, okay. and then we have our personal social media too, which maybe we can yeah we also can link, link. Up, yeah. Yeah. yeah we'll put so all the links in the description. Yeah, yeah. we use mathematics on yeah. everything. Yeah. Okay, um, <laughs> and that's their position in our company. I'm an imaginatrix in our company. Yes. But oh my god, we didn't even talk about how right. y'all create up create like you all have your own dictionary. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm Nastasia Noted and Nastasia Meets World. Um, cool. That's my full name is Nastasia, but I go by Stas. Okay. Awesome. We'll have to have another talk about yeah. creativity. Yeah. But yeah. Yes. Cool. Thank you so much. This was so beautiful. Yeah, thank, thank you for having me. Yay.